You're listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program that helps you put into action the truth of God's Word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. And now, here are your hosts, Ezra Beyer and David Hartkopf. Hey there, welcome to the Monday Christian Podcast. Dave and I, back in studio, same location, virtually, different places, but yeah, we dude, we're back together. The, the the team is back. I was going to say the A team is back, but I just said the team is back. This the, We're back together. Yeah, last week, my wife, as I shared with you on the podcast last week, David Lamb. So thank you for jumping in with that, Dave. But um, my wife's grandfather passed away in Kingston, Ontario. And so she had to travel out there and um, was able to be with him actually when he died. So that was very, very meaningful. Um, but as I was with three kids here at home and uh, just made recording podcasts a little bit different. Yeah, that would have been a, that would have been a fun to have some <laughs> uh, some guests on for a little bit. Uh, that, that was great. A, a five three, and then my youngest daughter just turned one yesterday, so that would have been that would have been a challenge. Yes, I feel like we should do a podcast with our kids sometime just to see what happens. I feel like it it could be like one of those things that nobody watches or something crazy happens and it goes viral. Uh, I started that actually. I I've, no. I did do these interviews. It's been a while since we've done one, but with Zoe, we would call up random people that we know and we would just ask them questions, like basic questions, like, you know, um, who is Noah, right? And yeah. have them tell us. And it's pretty funny the questions and conversations you have. <laughs> yeah. um, well, our guest today in the podcast, Bonnie Christian. And oh, before I get into that, real quick. Oh, we developed a new website, themoneychristian.com, so same location, but uh, updated, did a lot of updates to it, made some tweaks, adjustments, and so if you want to check that out, great. Also, you can subscribe to us. We're going to be sending out a weekly, uh, basically, update that reveals the podcast, blogs, but then other things that uh, maybe our creators on the team are we're getting a growing list of creators. I think we're up to like six or seven now. Um, and so if you want to be a part of that, go ahead and on the subscribe button, you can subscribe for free. That's easy. Uh, if you want to do a monthly donation that helps us cover the costs and that'd be helpful as well. But Bonnie Christian, bringing her on the podcast today, uh, fascinating individual and she's written, um, her, her new book. Um, and, but she's in addition to being an author of books, she writes very widely. And Dave, I know you've done a little bit of a deep dive into this. Yeah, she's she writes for uh, Christianity Today, and her her sort of opinion column there is, uh, is a pretty large following. And she's not afraid to tackle current, current topics. And she kind of writes in, I would say it's fair to say, like in the politics genre some. Um, but what I appreciate about her voice and her writing is that uh, she doesn't necessarily a pander to a political party. So I, she, I don't know that if she's one of the many people that sort of feel kind of like they're floating uh, these days where there's, they wouldn't describe themselves fully by any one sort of nomenclature. Um, but she has an ability to speak truth and to, uh, as needed as kind of like speak some challenging things. I don't feel like she's a flamethrower, you know, like constantly looking yeah. to grab headlines, but also she, she writes some pretty direct um, things and, and very uh, precisely. She, yeah, her writing, writer. her writing is excellent. Um, and I, I think you, you should go read her, some of her columns. We said, we're going to link some of them in the show notes. And I think uh, you'll be able to kind of connect from there. 
Her books on Trustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community. And I'll just say this, maybe some of you over the last years, you've been, uh, you felt frustrated with maybe some of your friends, family members that have, I don't know, maybe they bought into what you consider conspiracy theories, poor thoughts, poor political ideology, I don't know, whatever. Um, if you've kind of, you've wrestled with that a lot, uh, hopefully this podcast, this exchange is encouraging to you, helpful, because uh, Bonnie, in addition to, to just sh- like sharing practical insights, I, I would say she also has a degree of humility where she approaches these conversations and acknowledges, hey, there are times I've missed it and I've had to apologize. And so I appreciate that about her. And so let's go ahead and get into this conversation here with Bonnie Christian. Our guest on the podcast this week is Bonnie Christian. Bonnie, great to have you on board this week. Thank you for joining the Money Christian Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And for those of you that don't know Bonnie, she's a columnist at Christianity Today, a fellow at Defense Priorities, a foreign policy think tank, and writing at other outlets, including the New York Times, Reason, and the Daily Beast. So a wide variety of writing, especially online, that we've come across. And so just I just want to say up front, thank you for your voice and adding your contribution to this world. So we appreciate it. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, when did you first start as a writer? Was that something that came to you early on? Yeah. So I knew by probably high school that I wanted to get into journalism. I was a big reader of like Newsweek and Time Magazine and uh, World Magazine back then. Um, And so I, after college, I was working in the DC area at some political nonprofits for a few years, but I was doing like comms work, like Mm -hmm. come to our event or, you know, sign up for this email list or whatever. And I realized that if I wanted to write more about ideas than logistics that I'd probably need uh, an advanced degree to do it the way that I wanted to. And so that was when we moved out to Minnesota for me to go to seminary at Bethel Seminary out there in the Twin Cities. And then while I was in school, I started gradually building up a, a freelance portfolio. Um, and for a long time, my home base was uh, an outlet called The Week. And I left there in May and I'm back to freelancing for now, um, at least until after this new book comes out. I'm a writing nerd. So what about writing really appeals to you? I mean, it's a lot of quiet hours mm-hmm. sitting behind, whether it's a keyboard or I, how do you write? Do you go to coffee shops? Do you have to have absolute solitude? What's your process look like? No, for the for the most part, I write at home. Occasionally, I'll, I'll head out to a coffee shop, but I, I don't have one that I love in walking distance. And that, I don't know, that's a big impediment for me somehow to have yeah. to drive somewhere. Um, yeah, in our, our current house here in Spurs, office space a whole room to myself so that helps a lot um because we have three-year-old twins so not having them in the room is a generally a a precondition of writing anything um but i try to think about writing especially on the on the day-to-day basis where for the most part articles that i'm writing go from like conception to publication within 24 hours or less um and usually about you know six hours of working time um, I try to think of it, you know, much more as a matter of production than mm-hmm. like artistry. <laughs> um, I'm not trying to write the great American novel. You know, obviously I, I want to do the best I can, but at the end of the day, do I have a product or not? You know, very much in the way that if you are like making something in a factory, do, did you, did you do your product and your shift? Mm. And that's a lot of how I think about it. 
Dave, I know I'm hogging the conversation here, but you know, it, writing is just such a fascinating thing for me. And and so when you go to write, um, mm-hmm. I mean, do you look at it as kind of like a, you know, you mentioned production. Um, are there holy experiences, for lack of a better term, that, that come from that? Where I, just personally, when when I write, sometimes it's like you're just getting through the mundane, mm-hmm. but then sometimes you're writing things and you're like, oh man, this really challenges me to rethink things and it's almost becomes a worshipful experience Mm. yeah sometimes I would say that's generally going to be more on like in a a book writing scenario or something that's a little bit less driven by the daily news cycle than most of the work I'm doing day to day Um, so yeah I wouldn't say never but I, I, I wouldn't describe like you know when I'm sitting down and writing like what are what are the chances of what's going to happen in this election? Not terribly worshipful. <laughs> Speaking right, of that, please. yeah, I just so uh, homework wise, Bonnie, I I read articles as read your book. So between the two of us, <laughs> we're pretty familiar with your writing. But you had um, uh, we we have some from some some acquaintances in Ukraine right now. They actually just mm-hmm. went back. Um, they were there in occupied territory, and they came back to the states, and now they're back there near Zaporozhye. But you had this a wonderful article about the information war. And I was just wondering, maybe just by way of introduction, you could sort of comment on that because I felt like the, the point that you were making there was so important, especially for us, you know, I'm, I'm, I kind of watch Twitter daily to kind of try to figure out what's going on. But like you said, in your writing, there's so much it, truths or half truths and uh, using scripture to, to help us when we have all of this information sort of coming at us and, having limited access ability to curate it. I, I don't know, but maybe you could just comment on that. And I would, I would encourage you, maybe we'll put a link in the show notes, uh, just a fantastic article for Christianity Day. So yeah, thank you for writing that. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, so I, a, a lot of that actually is, I mean, it's apt that that's what you would bring up for this because a lot of that really cribbed on some research from my book, uh, which is always handy if you can write something that you, you've already done the the heavy lifting of the research for another product project. Um, yeah, I mean, especially early on when the war first broke out, back in the spring, there were a lot of these like stories going around, usually very pro-Ukrainian and, and um, very dramatic. And there was like this video of a, a ace fighter pilot like going around shooting down Russian planes. The ghost of and, Kiev, right? Yeah, the ghost of Kiev. And, and everybody was like pumped about this stuff because, you know, Russia's in the wrong, like you, you want to see... Um, you know, the Ukrainians uh, successfully defending themselves and, and keeping their home. And so much of it was just fake. Like the ghost of Kiev was footage, from, it turned out was footage from a video game. Um, and so, which is wild, like that that's A, that video game footage is that good now, but B, that that, that worked um, for so many people. And so, yeah, the argument that I made was like, we're in sort of a n- new territory here where, we're getting, there's always been war propaganda, but where it's so decentralized and it's coming directly at so much of us. Like it's very different from seeing a newsreel at the theater that you know your government made. Like that's just a different experience where it's easier to delineate. Like, okay, I know I know that this is propaganda. Maybe propaganda you agree with. Okay. Argument that I made was like, you know, if you're gonna be out there encountering this stuff, especially on social media where this is coming at you from all sides and it can be really difficult to tell is this real or not that the the best thing that we can do is cultivate 
in ourselves, like intellectual virtues and, and come mm. to the information. Uh, you know, we can't necessarily determine what kind of information we're going to encounter. And it can be really hard, you know, even with your best efforts it can be really hard to encounter only high quality information or high quality reporting. Um, but you can come to it hopefully as like a, a different sort of person, a person who, who has really developed like a feel for truth and, and intellectual honesty and studiousness that is going to help you parse what you're Well, in full disclosure here, it's so funny because I like to think that I pride myself on being a little bit discerning with the stuff I post. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that just shows you that the story I'm about to share is, uh, shows the opposite. <laughs> um, but uh, to that point uh, with Ukraine, I remember posting something, you know, reposting something about like fighter pilots that were going over and terrorizing like, like a community. And then after I posted it, I was like, wait, something about that just doesn't seem right. And then you go back and you look at it and probably was a mixture like of a video game. <laughs> and, and one of my friends, I'm going to rat him out here. <laughs> he, he had a number of friends in Ukraine and they, they sent him these pictures of like clouds in the sky that look like angels, right? And uh, sorry, Dan, I'm ratting you out here. Um, but he, he and he reposts this and and then his friend texted him later and said this, well, it actually wasn't like exact pictures. It was like, but it was kind of like, um, like what we imagined them or thought that they, they looked like. <laughs> and just, just a slight difference. Right. But, but yeah. in those two things, right. Truth. And we'll just, just get to your book here. Untrustworthy. Um, truth has really come under attack in the last number of years. And so, a general question just from our audience's perspective, and I threw this out on our social media channel today. I mean, how do you define or how, how do you um, decipher between what is truth and fiction when so much of it, it seems like there's a gray line? How, what process do you go through? Well, I mean, this, so there's no sort of like big single rule I can give, unfortunately. Um, the, the most important thing I think that I keep coming back to is really about limiting the number of topics that you're paying attention to so that you don't expertise and have a sense of, you know, sort of like what you said, like something about this doesn't feel right. Uh, if you try to follow every story in the media at once, you will follow everything at a very shallow level. And that makes you, I think, especially susceptible to deception because you, if you don't have a good sense of like, all right, what's happened with this situation over the past couple of years? Who are like the important people for this? What do those people think about this? It's going to be so much easier for you to fall for something that is not true because you, you don't have any, it's brand new information. It's like, all right, here's, here's this little droplet of information presented with limited context you don't know any better. So how are you going to tell? Like it would take some, you would have to actually like go out and, and learn things <laughs> about a topic. And so what I suggest to people, and I do this myself as a journalist, like there are a limited, I, I write pretty broadly. I'm not like a single, single subject area writer in, in covering politics, but it is actually pretty well defined, like the things that I will discuss. And so if you go out and look for for articles from me about like environmental policy or abortion or immigration, you could probably count on one hand everything I've ever written on those subjects. And it's not that they're not important, they are important, but 
they are outside my wheelhouse and they are things that, you know, I'm, I'm not well informed to comment on those. And if I go read an article about them, I try to hold what I'm reading with a pretty light hand because I don't know enough to determine at a really detailed level, is this real or not? And I think just as that's important for me, like working in media, it's also important for us as consumers of media to not try to know a little bit about everything, but to try to pick a few things, know those well, and then the rest, eh, you probably don't need to, to follow it. And if you do try to follow it at that shallow level, you're going to find yourself believing many more false things than you will in that, that narrowly defined area where you're going to, to actually come to know the subject. Do you feel like any of this is made worse by sort of the, the rise in division maybe in our culture? I don't know that in my limited 38 years that I've ever seen so much division and it, it seems like people that say yes and also this or yes, but this, they don't really have a, they don't have a hitching post. They don't, hmm. they don't get to ascend in some little subculture. And so if you're not willing to like toe the company line, that's kind of shallow and superficial, it, this sort of bumper sticker things, then you're not going to, you're not going to have any friends. Uh, is that, <laughs> is that, is that, uh, is that fair? Uh, I mean, I think it, I think it depends. Um, not align with either maybe or sort of what I would describe as like the energetic center of American politics right now, which is uh, to give a very rough shorthand, economically liberal and socially conservative. Um, and I think I've done okay. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes if you're, if you, you end up sort of outside where most people are, as, as long as you, uh, you know, you get to agree with some people some all of the time, right? Like there's always going to yeah, be something true. that, that people can find you tolerable on. Um, but I, you know, I do think is role on the, at least compared to sort of our immediate cultural background where we think about like, um, I guess like the 1950s through 1990s where there was like a comparatively mainstream consensus um, uh, and you had far fewer media outlets and those people were, were getting sort of all the same input on their news and politics coverage. Um, so I do think that we're, we're certainly more divided than we were then, but I would suggest that the, the bigger difference is the, the volume of, of information attention that we're spending on this stuff also the way that the internet has allowed us all to be not just speakers but in a much more public sense than used to be possible like producers of content and so mm. you know, we were it's there's an, an a thought experiment that i put in the book that i like to ask people to do which is like imagine if you were doing the amount of sharing of content that you do now, but you were doing it in 1995 or so. And so, you know, there is no Facebook. So you have to cut your clips out of the newspaper and take them and you get them Xeroxed and you need to get like, you know, several hundred copies because you're doing it with your whole friends list. And then you want to share a video clip. So you've recorded that on VHS and you need to then make copies of all the VHS. And then you're going to take like a Polaroid picture of yourself to be the profile picture and you're going to package this all up and you're going to take it to the post office. You're going to mail it off to your 250 friends. Um, people would think you were like an insane person because that's not normal behavior. Um, and I think that that is still in a real sense, not super normal behavior. It's 
it's a little less weird because you can do it so much faster. Um, but I think the way that that allows us to to set ourselves all up as like broadcasters, if you will, and commit ourselves publicly to positions that we then don't want to back down on because people don't like going back on things if they've committed to them in public, even if they're trivial and it doesn't matter. Um, that exacerbates everything because now it's no longer just, hey, I heard this thing on the radio. It's here is my views that I've presented to all of you and, and they're right and you're wrong. Bonnie, did you ever go through a time maybe especially early on in your writing career where you felt like you had to take a step back where you thought, Oh man, I'm sharing too much. And that, um, I need to go through a season of, um, whether it's, you know, God working on my life in different areas, things like that. Uh, I just asked that because I feel like that's a common thing with people that are, have such a wide influence as you do, where you, you start and you get into it and you realize, man, people are reading this stuff, right? <laughs> There's a lot of response. And then how do you guard your soul against some of the negative implications that can come from that? Yeah. Um, well, two things. One is I've, I've always been very fortunate for the amount of controversial things I say online. I don't get a lot of hate mail. Um, certainly a lot more people could be sending me angry messages than, than actually do. Um, so that I think is, you know, has been a, a blessing and something that maybe has limited my, sort of like, you know, like a, you see writers will say, I, I need to take six months off Twitter because of like the terrible things people say to yeah. me that I've yeah. not really felt that need because for the most part, people don't say terrible things to me. Um, I have set myself up with the title of this new book insult though and only one person's gotten to it so far but somebody was mad at a article i wrote trustworthy and i was like there it is that's going to be coming for the rest of my life um so early on in that some from like 2009 10 maybe to like 2015 or so 2016 i had a very large following on uh tumblr blogging platform um it was like i think i topped out at like 115,000 people which is like a small city very yeah. weird phenomenon um and there i definitely shared a little bit more like personal things than i would share online now and i think had that continued at a certain point i would have had to sort of had that have that step back uh instead what happened network died <laughs> and everybody went away and uh you know it was accounts following me but there was no and so eventually i just deleted everything and shut it down and so that that sort of precluded me from having to, to have that and then the time i you know within a uh, around the time that that was disintegrating when I was really starting to think like, you know, I should, now that I am no longer an early enamored of the internet in the same I once was, um, I think at the point where I would have said I need to pull back, it had already sort of happened for me. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I know. It's, it's just a fascinating thing because I think people that don't go through that and mm -hmm. then they just keep posting every detail about them, their lives eventually at some point they just kind of crash and it just, it becomes too much uh, for them, them to handle. And so, 
that's fascinating. Going back to, so um, early on in the book, book you talk about uh, the guy that you'll refer to as Jim, right? Mm -hmm. And going back several years ago, 2016 election, all that, and then the 2020 election, um, just a different time for a lot of people and and how they understand whether it was Trump talking about fake news and all that. Um, it, it Well, why don't you just share that story and how that got some wheels turning in your mind around this topic? Yeah. Yeah, well, so this was in the first and uh, Jim's older, um, around retirement age, former colleague of mine, and he was to a, a new Sid to be near family and, like, you know, sort of settle there for the rest of their lives. And I, like, love looking at real estate listings and especially older houses. And it was like, you know, sending Zillow links and stuff and sort of talking about like their plans with them. And as the election got nearer, and they were both Trump supporters, and as the election got nearer, and it was, they were starting to realize like, hey, he might not have this in the bag. He then began to get very nervous about the prospect of buying a property, especially in a large city, because he had this anticipation that if the if Biden won, if the Democrats were in charge, we would very shortly undergo just like societal collapse. And this culminated in a conversation where he said to me, look, I just don't want to be in the middle of a million starving people. And this was his reason for why he, he couldn't buy a house in this city to be near family. And I was just like in shock of this idea that he had so taken to heart the things he would hear on, especially talk radio about like the Democrats are going to come in and deliberately destroy the country. And, you know, we're, we're going to like supply chains are going to totally break down and there's going to be no food in the stores and we need land so that we can grow our own food or we're not going to survive. And that's why I can't live in the city. And he, he didn't, buy a house. He um, put some of that money toward some of the deposit money toward buying a, a used camper trailer and um, no house. And so, and that's just like, it was, it was wild to me. Like you're going to change your whole life based on these things that you've believed from political commentators. And now of course, we're two years later, there's still food in the stores. Um, but that, that down payment money is wrapped up in a used trailer. Yeah, uh, you know, I, and so that was just like that was a big moment of realization for me, where, you know, it's it it's one thing to talk about like, oh, grandma's sharing too many stupid political memes on Facebook, and that's not great, but it's not ruining her like financial future, um, and so that I think drove home for me that there were more more serious potential implications to this sort of knowledge crisis topic that I'd been dancing around in some of my work, that there were more potentially serious implications than just, um, you know, the Facebooking is bad. Well, isn't that where it really hits home with everyone mm. when all of a sudden it becomes personal, right? It stops being, Oh, well, that's just, you know, that's my strange friend or my strange uncle and they just say strange things. But when it actually results in action, um, where they're, it depends on where they live, right? It motivates mm -hmm. them and how they treat other people. I mean, that was a big thing that I saw. And, and to be fair, both sides of the aisle. I mean, just yeah. some of the ways during COVID that people would talk about other people um, was just just so crazy to me because it's like, 
these are people you've known your whole life and you're, you're yeah, it's like where did this come from and the yeah. answer is it probably came from like msnbc or fox news or facebook mm. or twitter mm. or um and just that like immersion or talk radio yeah. as in this case that immersion of like that it you know it, it rewires your brain and it it changes how you think about, you know, even people whom you know and, and should know better than what some pundit is saying about them because of how they voted. Well, and Dave, I'm sorry, I'm cutting you off here, but I'll just speak from a personal perspective. Um, I know growing up, right, I would listen to whether it was Rush Limbaugh, I'd listen to him on the drive to work. I'd listen to uh, Bill O'Reilly when he was, you know, doing his little monologues at night on, on Fox News and things like that. Now, some of the stuff, you know, I thought Rush was a funny guy. I thought, you know, Bill had some interesting points and things like that. But here's here's the challenge. If you only, what I've discovered over the years, if you only focus on one area, if you only listen to Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, one channel, you might think you're being objective. But really, um, until you actually listen to people that think differently than you and, and, and you actually give them an open mind – you might not be as objective as you think. And I know in my case, it wasn't until I really confronted people of differing, take the poverty issue, you know, social mm -hmm. justice issues. I had different, you know, you know, we get into trickle down economics and all that kind of stuff, right? I had very, you know, conservative views, but then all of a sudden I lived in the midst of an inner city and then you realize, oh, okay, so some of these things, I never, one of the reasons I never really considered the opposite perspective was because I never really encountered people who were, impacted by this in the way that it should have, you know, that, that they were, and never had someone articulate those views in the way I needed to hear them articulated. And so, Dave, I don't know, maybe what's your journey with this been? You know, well, just like, to realize that this talking head, probably it was, you know, to kind of realize this person is really not in an unbiased pursuit of truth, probably like they're, they need ratings to sell to sell advertising and they get a job report pretty frequently. And so they, they make money off people being perpetually enraged or outraged or freaked out about something. And so, and that, that just kind of goes across the board as far as talking to a family member or talking to Jim, you're kind of the, the sad thing for me is I, I feel like I'm in relational checkmate because yeah. I, <laughs> There's no in. I can't. It's it's very difficult to to have a conversation. And I find that oftentimes, you know, as people reflect, it may be just on how we understood COVID, you know, as we quickly have kind of rushed out of that. I, I want to just like hit pause for like a week and just like, let's think about all the decisions that we made and how we voiced opinions publicly and all this stuff. Let's just reflect. Let's just have like a week of, of national reflection on this. Right. But that typically doesn't happen. And be, and because of that, it's like you don't there's never a lesson learned so that next time, like, man, I should have been more circumspect or I should have talked to more people or man, I was really, really wrong about that one or how I understand science. There's just so many things that kind of go into the blender but if someone's not open for, a, I wonder if for Jim, for example, if is Jim like, wow, I could have had a house at two and a half percent. <laughs> oh, man, the like, interest rate aspect of right? it is like, just, like, just like the wages like, have gone up since I felt yeah. and I'm like looking at those interest rates like. Yeah, I just wonder like if, if Jim was like, man, I really messed that one up and I should have been 
I should have listened to somebody else. I, I, I don't know what the reflection process looks like, but that makes me sad. Yeah. I mean, so far, no. And, and that's the, and what you said about there being no way in, like, that's the really difficult thing. I think that's true in a lot of these cases, like my instinct and, you know, I argue for a living and so my instinct and something like this is, yeah, let's argue it out. Like, I'm going to show you how you're wrong. Um, <laughs> but one of the, one of the conclusions that I came to while writing the book and while like talking to pastors and, um, I relied on GK Chesterton has some really great stuff on this. Arguing does not work. Like it doesn't matter how good your arguments are. Um, And this is why I think like as important as it is to, to try to like have that balanced media diet and like read arguments from other sides. um, You know, I think minds mostly don't change um, unless someone is really open to, to changing their mind about something, unless they're like coming to an argument saying like, yeah, I might be persuaded by this. Like I'm, I'm open to hearing what this person has to say for the most part, when there's not that openness, I don't think arguing works even at a, even at an interpersonal level. Um, and that goes against my own instincts, but like for the most part, I don't talk politics with people I know, even if I think that they're so wrong and I could enlighten them. Um, because I know it's not going to get us anywhere. And also, even in those cases where I think they're most strong and going down some wild rabbit hole, I think that I stand a much better chance, you know, because especially in my case, it's not like they don't know what I think because I I professionally air my opinions. Um, And so I think the, the far better chance that I stand to like maybe shifting them away from untruths that they bought into is like, let's talk about your dog or like your job or your vacation plans because building those relationships every time, every minute that you're spending talking about like the dog is a minute that you're not spending listening to (laughs) some nonsense or, or like digging yourself deeper into hating your political opponents. Yeah. No wait. I almost put a sign in the door, but I didn't want to be rude. Right. Whenever we have parties, right. Um, We're not going to talk about, you know, mask on airplanes <laughs> politics we're not, you know there's like three or four things over the last several years i just don't want to talk about it at my kids yeah. birthday party, right <laughs> and it's it's like not productive like i think we all no, sort of come back to this op, like naive optimism of like i'm yeah. gonna convince him and you're not gonna convince him it's just yeah. you're just gonna end up angry and then the party sucked but here's one thing i don't i'm curious your take on this that i've found that is helpful on social media is is if someone kind of comes at you i've got that a few times i mean nothing nothing crazy but sometimes you have someone that will come at you i think that's a great opportunity to Mm -hmm. show the love of christ to people and do you come back and punch back at them or do you actually treat them as a person and try to engage with them and interact with them um we had who was it we just had on was jay kim uh talked about this Mm -hmm. someone reached out to him and pretty aggressive, you know, didn't like something he wrote in his book, but then found out, oh, this guy's, he's hurting, right? And that difference between someone who's hurting and someone who's out to do you harm, um, kind of a fine line sometimes. And, you know, one of the things I loved about the way you wrote in in this book um, was just some of your humility with it, with, okay, why don't you share this illustration with a, um, uh, was it Jerry Falwell that you were writing? You, you wrote a piece. And then you said, hey, hold on a second. I don't know if I have all the facts. And you corrected. So am I sharing that? What was, oh, sorry, you guys broke up for a second. What did you say? 
Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it is. It is breaking up a little bit. I, I think hopefully it'll be better at, um, when it uh, we do the post edit. Oh, sure, because it's all the, um, the local recording. Yeah. Um, so uh, you wrote a piece, I think, on Jerry Falwell several years ago, and mm -hmm. not exactly flattering. And I know the way you set it up, it would have been hard to kind of take back what you wrote. But then you realize, oh, I actually messed something up with this, and you made a change. So talk about that. Yeah, so this was from, um, it was the beginning of the pandemic, and it was when we pushing down and moving to like online formats. And so I was writing about Liberty University and Jerry Falwell Jr., who was the president of the university at the time. This was before all of his like scandals and stuff came out. And he had, they had announced that unlike most schools, including most Christian schools, they were going to keep their dorms fully open. And, you know, let, I think this was like to come back to campus after spring break. And so this was potentially something like, I want to say it was like 16,000 kids was the capacity for the dorm rooms, um, you know, which is like a lot of people to bring together. And at that time, it was like a month, a couple weeks, very early on in COVID where there's like so little information and everybody's in sort of like that. It was, it was right at the tip of when it was just starting to become more politicized and you know there was that that period right at the beginning where everyone was sort of like is this something we should be really really worried about um so we were all very cautious and he was like no 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 like the only reason things are shutting down is because uh, the democrats want to hurt trump and destroy the economy so that he'll lose the next election and so i'm going to keep the school open and then he also had said at a uh, he had spoken about this at like a, a school chapel or convocation or something. And he had been quoted in a, a local news outlet. And so I wrote, quote, in an unfortunate slip of the tongue, Falwell initially resisted moving to online instruction because he said the school's extant online classes, which instruct about 85% of Liberty's student body under normal conditions are, quote, not really the same quality of education, unquote, as residential courses. So we published this piece. Um, and then I had an email from Liberty University saying like the quote that you gave about what, what Jerry Falwell Jr. said about our, the quality of our online education, it, you know, like the words were correct. I had not like misquoted the words, but it was wildly out of context. And so I had like relied on the framing of this local media outlet and had not like dug up the clip myself. I, I don't think I even realized that they put all of their chapels online, though in retrospect, I was like, oh, of course they do. It's a huge school. They're going to film it and put it online. So I felt very stupid for not having thought to go look at their YouTube channel and find the original words myself. But I had relied on this other reporting, hadn't done the research myself, and had completely misrepresented his meaning. Um, in fact, the point that he was making was that our schools are like cobbled together online instruction, like places that had never done online instruction before and were just sort of like cobbling together these haphazard things to try to get through the end of the semester. He was saying those are actually not great. And I mean, he, he was right. Like I, I agreed with that point and had completely misquoted him. Uh, and so we had to issue a correction on the piece and it's, you can dig it up and still see the correction. It's there. It's like all caps, I think. Um, and you know, just took the quote out completely. The, fortunately, the, it wasn't like the linchpin of the article. The article could still stand without it, but um, we had to, to cut that out and say we'd misrepresented him. And then, you know, I had to, to write back to the, the um, Liberty University staffer who had written to me and, and just like sincerely apologize because 
this was not, you know, a, a small thing. It was a, a significant misrepresentation of what he'd said in a way that was, you know, like integral to his role at the school. Um, and so, yeah, I started the the media chapter with that <laughs> story, um, just really burnishing my own credibility. But to talk about, you know, like the the nature and um, importance of of corrections yeah. in journalism. But Bonnie, isn't that important for not just journalists, but everyday people that are tweeting, posting on social media, right? You say something that kind of hurts people, offends people. I actually think more of people that go and, and make a correction. I, I think more of someone who says, man, I posted something the other day, but I was having a bad day. You know, <laughs> and I just said something dumb that I, I shouldn't have said, right? Or, you know, whatever, however mm-hmm. they phrase it. I think more of a person that does that. And um, I, I wish that were more of a common thing, I guess. Uh, yeah, but um, yeah, I, in fairness, it is, it is trickier. I, or it's, um, it's easier to let it slide, I think, when it's just mm-hmm. you, you know, like for, for all the, the critique that I think can be deservedly made of like, traditional media outlets they do generally have that internal process um and it's it's partly about regard for truth and wanting to be factual and it's partly about not wanting to get sued for uh, libel but you know whatever the exact mix of motives those processes exist and so like in my case um you know i i would have wanted to make that correction anyway right but i had editors who were like yeah we have to make this correction and and as individuals just out there on our own um, you know, I think we can ask friends and we can ask like loved ones to hold us accountable like that. Uh, but of course we don't have it sort of like built into how we're operating. It seems like the reverse gear is missing. It's, it's mm-hmm. easy. It's almost like we want to become God and we're so finite. We're so limited. And so when we make a mistake, whether it's about, you know, or we have a really strong opinion that later, you know, I was interested uh, during the pandemic sort of people saying, you know, the science is changing all the time. I was like, yeah, I think that's kind of how science is supposed to work. They learn new <laughs> stuff. I really hope they tell me. Um, and yet, but yet any, any noise that I heard from anybody there, there was something about what they said most of the time that was, there was something there. They had, they had a point to make that was not untruth, but it was surrounded by some other. So like nobody has the full story all the time. Some people, it's like a spectrum. Some people have more of the, of the, of the real story than others, but I think it's, it's important. I mean, submitting to one another a reverence for Christ. I think part of that means having a good reverse gear and just like, man, I, I want my kids to know that like, Hey, if you make a mistake, say, I'm sorry, say it in the appropriate venue to the appropriate people and, and move on. You know, like that should be the norm for people rather than doubling down on a position that in retrospect is like absurd. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big one. A few minutes left here, and then we're going to wrap up. You quote from Jeffrey Bilbro, uh, reading The Times. We had him on a few months ago, and talks about outrage. And so how do we get out of the outrage culture that sometimes we're in, and how do we be, as you mentioned, uh, faithful, factual, and fair? Another uh, tough one to answer succinctly. Uh, I think one of the great points that he makes is the way in which we sort of like go from one outrage to another where you're just sort of like scrolling um, and you know you briefly get mad about this post and then you scroll onward and briefly get mad about that post um, and so I think you know toward the end of the book where 
you sort of got to do that pivot to, so what do we do? Um, a lot of what I talk about is our habits. And, you know, I, it's not wrong to have an emotional response to dramatic stories, right? But I think we need to have a better sense of what do I actually need to know and how much time do I actually need to spend on these things? Uh, I have another section, I think, where I quote C.S. Lewis, and he was writing like it was like in 1946 or so, I want to say. Um, so like right after World War II, he's, he's not unaware that there can be a lot of evil in the world. Uh, but basically what he writes is like each, each village should be concerned about its own sick and its own tragedies and people can actually help and not things far away that you can't do anything about most of the time. Um, but that it's, it's not really possible to sincerely care for everything all the time. And in fact, sometimes caring about those faraway tragedies can be an excuse to not do like, you know, make a pot of soup and take it to yep. your friend who is sick down the well, street. Yeah. Um, and I think since then, we've gotten even more into this idea that raising awareness is an important thing and being aware is an important thing. Um, and not that that never has its place, but I think for most of us, especially if we find ourselves in that kind of like outrage cycle that Bilbro describes, for most of us, we could stand to spend just like a lot less of our time on, on these problems that we can't fix, um, that we, and that are distracting us from things that we could be doing for God and neighbor, like in our real lives right here, mm -hmm. not on the internet or about, you know, things that happened literally across the country from us that we'll forget about in three days because we've already moved on to the next outrage and there was nothing we could do for that outrage anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. David, isn't it kind of a weird thing where the whole idea of this podcast, right? And the website turning Sunday belief into Monday action, that's kind of the idea of it. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that sometimes you hold beliefs on Sunday, but then they don't translate to your everyday lives on Monday, but it's, it's funny how we can do that throughout the week as well with our selective causes. You know, Bonnie, one of the things that, you know, I've talked about numerous times, probably on this podcast as well, is that sometimes you can have different authors on that or are people that lead organizations and they have a particular cause that they're very passionate about. Mm -hmm. And most are great. They see this is one lane that I'm in and I need mm -hmm. to link arms with others. And most, most mm -hmm. are great, but there's a few that they kind of, you kind of get the vibe that it's their lane is the only one that matters, right? Mm. And that their cause and churches and pastors are all falling short. And if they would just get in line here, then a lot of our problems would be fixed. Um, I mean, how did you process that? Because I'm, I'm sure there are probably th topics that are you're very passionate about. How do you try to have a well-rounded perspective and try to think of yourself as, I guess, wholly Christian and not just focused on your you know, important topic of choice. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tough one. I think something that I remind myself of pretty often. And so, especially when I'm writing at, at Christianity today, because the, my column there is mostly about politics, not always policy proper, but like political things, things that concern the public. Um, and the, what I'm always on guard against when I'm writing, especially anything that's going to make like a more specific policy recommendation is, does this come off as I'm saying, if you don't agree with me at the end of this column, you're a worse Christian than I am. Um, huh. You know, especially writing at like Christianity Today, like I don't yeah. want right. to, I want to make a very strong case often for what I think is right, but I don't want to end it with 
the sense of like, you know, and I, I, I'm looking down upon your faith or questioning your faith if you don't land where I do. And that can be a tricky balance to strike. Um, and so what I, what I think about often, and often it helps, I think, to think of specific people, be they people you know, or people from like church history, think about people who never knew anything about the cause that you find so important. Like, mm. maybe it didn't exist in their time, maybe it did exist. And because like, they had different modes of communication, they couldn't have found out. Maybe they've been, you know, busy raising eight children and didn't read the news for 20 years, because they had other things to do. Um, and think about like, in many cases, they have much stronger faith than I do. Like they have like done, you know, become much more mature in their faith and have done much more with the Lord than I have done. And, you know, yes, my heart agree with them all, but also like here are people who cared about different things, had different views and still like have a sort of faith that I like wish I could have. And so, you know, it, I try to keep that sort of example in mind, I think. Yeah. Dave, why don't you close us out? I mean, I love that, Bonnie, just, just a gracious humility and, and how you approach conversations. Like uh, that's to me is, is one of the keys. Bonnie, thanks for your time today. Just wondering uh, what's the best way for uh, folks to kind of stay in contact with you. Um, I think the single best thing right now is uh, I have a Substack, as everyone does now, um, a Substack that currently is around tied to uh, this new book um, that will be changing probably like next year after the book is fully out into the world. But for now, it's about the book and it's at bonniechristian.substack.com. Um, and one of the, the big things that I should tell people is if you subscribe and it's free, it's not like a paid Substack. If you subscribe, I'm going to be doing like a little book club thing in like the latter half of October into November, hopefully basically just taking subscriber questions uh, for a couple chapters each week. So if you if you have bought my book and you're reading it and you have questions you want to ask me, you can send those in for the first like three weeks or so. I will answer them written by email. Um, and then in the last week, I'm hoping to do some sort of like live video thing where people can like chat with me face to face um and all you have to do is sign up i like it bonnie thank you for joining us today i appreciate your time yeah thank you guys well that was a great conversation thought-provoking helpful yeah yeah it's uh, soul searching her humility that that uh sort of illustration she shared about the retraction was powerful what one of the things that i think as we need to circle back around and keep talking about as a conversation starter um, is her idea that there, that there's some great things about being able to platform yourself easily and get your voice out there. It sort of gives you a voice, but there's some real dangers in the ease to which we can sort of self platform these days. And here we are talking about fast, especially you're talking like two guys having a podcast talk together, but there's this danger, um, sort of her comments about how it would have looked in like 1995 to sort of disseminate information before versus how it is today. It just, it's, it's a, it's a warning. I think that we need to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Pick up her book on trustworthy, very helpful read, uh, challenging read, um, thought provoking. So thank you for joining us 
and on next week with Claude Alexander. So looking forward to that. But until then, we'll talk to you all again next week. Thank you for listening to the Monday Christian Podcast. To support our vision and find new ways to put your faith into action throughout the week, visit themondaychristian.com. That's themondaychristian.com. Thank you.